0: I didn't make it up. So we all follow these seasons. The book was kind of a natural layout for me because I do follow the six seasons culinarily. You almost have to. Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Flavors Unknown, the podcast where we explore the incredible world of food and the people we're bringing to life. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in a food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists from around the US, where we talk about their path to success, their sources of inspiration, and how their cultural background influences their creative process. This week, we have a special guest with us. She is a pastry chef author. She's the sister of Sandra Bullock. Her name is Gazina Bullock Prado. In this episode, we'll be discussing Gezina's journey from Hollywood to Vermont, her transition from Law to Pastry, and her latest cookbook, My Vermont Table, Recipe for All Six Seasons. Yes, you heard that right. Six seasons. So make sure to follow Flavors Unknown on Instagram for a chance to win a copy of this amazing cookbook. <music> Hi, Gezina, How are you?
0: I'm well. How are you?
1: I'm very good. Thank you. I'm very excited to have you on, on the show. And I had the chance to, you know, to go through and flip through the book. It's a, it's a wonderful book, My Vermont Table. But before we get into this, I would like to learn a little bit more about you. And can you tell us about yourself and like your background in pastry?
0: Well, I'm a pastry chef. I'm a baking instructor. I have my own baking school called Sugar Glider Kitchen. And I also instruct at King Arthur Flowers Education Center. And teaching is my great love. I love sharing my knowledge with home bakers all around the world. And I'm so lucky that my classes fill out really quickly and people will travel from other countries to take classes. And it's such a, it's such an honor to do it. And it's a great joy.
1: You know, looking at your profile and obviously, you know, you move from the West Coast, you know, to Vermont. So what inspired you to break away from, I would say, the Hollywood lifestyle and pursue your passion for pastry?
0: Well, it wasn't a lifestyle that I necessarily chose. I was in school in L.A. for law school. But during the time I was going through high school, college and law school, I was baking throughout. I baked as soon as I could reach a stove. And I also, during those periods of what should have been study, I always immersed myself in pastry. So, I essentially put myself through kind of this boot camp of pastry whenever I was stressed or I was not happy with the Los Angeles lifestyle, which was often. So I was baking all the time. And then, when after my mother passed, and she died very young to my mind in her early 60s, and she was incredibly healthy, very fit. But cancer is that evil thing that will take anyone anytime. I said, life's too short to not pursue the thing that brings you joy.
1: If there's any things that you have learned, you know, going to law school that, you know, you can. You know, bring into what you are doing now in pastry, or it's really completely disconnected? I'm just curious if there's anything that you have learned there that maybe you can, you know, that's this previous, let's say, path that you have taken that influence your approach to pastry now.
0: You'd be surprised about how many lawyers have changed their lives and become bakers professionally. There are quite a few. Or lawyers who use Baking as a stress relief. One thing that they do share in common is that they're both very rules oriented. A lot of people find baking challenging because you must follow certain rules for anything to turn out well. The other thing that from law school that was clear to me is that I'm a very good communicator, and I was I won all the moot court competitions, which is something when you have to do oral arguments to an appellate court and win the court case, and I won those handily because i really enjoy explaining things and sharing information respectfully and that translates to my teaching directly so i think they are interconnected in some very interesting ways
1: very cool did there's any let's say assumption that you had to challenge or or break you know to become like a successful pastry chef coming from you know your background or it was like an easy transition.
0: I don't think any transition is easy. I think everything requires a great deal of work and practice. So I think it was quite normal, my progression, that I I study and I practice and I teach 24-7. It's my great love, but it's also something that I realize that I have to be immersed in it and c- continue learning constantly. And I think that's one of the great joys of doing what I do is that there's always something new to learn always new techniques. I'm coming up with new things. My colleagues are coming up with new things and kind of the exploratory and nature of pastry and of what we do is infinitely interesting and I'm never bored.
1: Okay. So I have two, two questions for you Rita, to what you just mentioned. I mean, one is how can people find your classes if they want to you know, register? So that's an easy one.
0: That's an easy one. Sugargliderkitchen.com is where you can register for classes. And the caveat is that when I post classes, they sell out within five minutes. And so it can be challenging to get into a class when I first post them. However, if you are patient, there are often cancellations because people panic and they book a slot, not consulting their schedule. So they will often have to cancel based on a schedule conflict. So if you just look at the schedule and like I have students who pop in every day, And just check to see if there was something that is opened quietly. That's a great way of of stepping into a class.
1: And the the second question that I had, you mentioned that, you know, because of like, you know, your nature, that you are, you know, always into an exploration phase. And so how do you stay current on new things that, you know, is happening in, in the bakery world?
0: Well, the great thing is that I'm very close to many of my colleagues and we share information with each other. I think the Internet is a beautiful thing. I think when you are a teacher and you are speaking with students constantly, they'll often bring they said, have you seen this or have you done that? and will bring things to my attention. But I think just the way our world works now, we are so interconnected and sharing information so openly all the time that I feel like in real time, we are discovering things together. And I think that's so interesting. And just being close to my colleagues, master bakers, that are always intrigued by what's new or techniques or technology that is helpful to us and, and intriguing to us. We're always sharing things and that's the other thing that I love about our profession is that we are very open about sharing our discoveries.
1: Yeah. And I think especially I, you know, on the podcast that I'm doing and interviewing, you know, pastry chefs and chefs around the country, I've seen like the the younger generation are all about collaboration and, and, you know, sharing is an important aspect. So do you do that as well? And, you know, social media, Instagram, and you have like an Instagram that people can follow and see what they are doing you are doing? Sorry,
0: yeah. My Instagram is gazina bp. So gazina bullock prado, but I just use the bp in it, and it's at. And so I do. I'm on Facebook and on TikTok. But yeah, I think it's so interesting how the kids are just so interested and helpful to each other and delighted in the things that they're exploring. Because that's how I feel about it as well.
1: So let's talk about your book my vermont table so what inspired you to base your cookbook on the six seasons of vermont and i have to say that i discovered those six seasons when i started like reading the first part of your book i'm like oh i never heard about this and i've been to vermont so that's funny
0: (laughs) yeah vermont vermonters are very very aware and this we all do follow these i didn't make i didn't make it up so we all follow these seasons and The book was kind of a natural layout for me because I do follow the six seasons culinarily. You almost have to. So there. right now we're heading into spring, hopefully. (laughs) We got a nice dumping of snow. So then we have mud season where we're making maple syrup. So that's happening now if the snow would only stop. So everything is very maple oriented, that it only makes sense because that's the thing that we're doing constantly. Sugaring takes quite a lot of work. So your focus really is just around maple syrup and all the things that you can do with it. And that would be mud season, which is just about now, probably a few more weeks. And then spring is when I go foraging and I look for morels, ramps, fiddleheads, all those lovely spring ephemerals that are only there for sometimes days. And you just have to be very aware of the world around you. And whether you've had enough rain, where the trees are rotting. On our property, I have this beautiful area where the morels are the happiest. And I tell no one where this is. And I just walk back there. And it's such a lovely way of spending a day where you have to be very soft. You have to be very aware and calm in order to spot them because they are so beautifully camouflaged in the forest floor. But the second you see them, you wonder why you didn't see them immediately because they're so strange looking. But I think it's really a matter of just being very thoughtful and aware and being a part of the world around you that if you're too, I always call it if you're too thirsty for them, you'll never find them. But if you are very calm and just enjoying your surroundings and are thoughtful about it, the morels will come to you. Not literally, but you'll, you'll see them.
1: I really love what you just said about that moment, that season, morel. It's brought, bring me back to my childhood in France when I was foraging, you know, mushrooms with my dad. And so what you just said echo a lot what his, you know, mindset. And the way how he taught me how to uh, look at nature and, you know, forage, you know, for ingredients and especially more else that was our, you know, common favorite mushroom. So, so thank you. That was, uh, that was very good.
0: <laughs> well, it is, it is beautiful. It's It's such a fantastic way to spend time with someone because the excitement of finding these treasures is something that you will share and remember for a lifetime. I have a friend with whom I forage. And she actually discovered first that morels were very happy on my property. And it's because we were making pizza in my in our pizza oven outside. And we were standing by the chicken coop and she looked down and she screamed. And I thought something horrible had happened to an animal. But it was because a morel had just decided to make itself known in a place where you would never expect to find it. It was by the chicken coop. And so it was obvious to us that some creature had deposited some lovely spore. And so the morales were saying, I am around you. You just haven't found where our family lives. <laughs> and so I decided to go hunting and I found them. And also ramps. The cu- what I love about spring is that you would think that it's, all the flavors would be very gentle. But instead, they're so impactful and powerful. It's like after waking up from a long winter, they are just raring to go. And so morels have that beautiful umami and the ramps are just bright and a little spicy. And the fiddleheads have like this herbaceous punch. They all have such grand flavors. When you think that they should be at their gentlest, they aren't at all. It is like they're coming in like a lion and uh, they're just so fabulous.
1: So, how does foraging influence your your cooking and and recipe development?
0: It affects a lot of it because I'm so curious about what might be popping up around. So, spring ephemerals are one thing that everyone is so I think is pretty are pretty aware of and all find exciting. But there are other things like staghorn sumac, even invasives like Japanese knotweed that will use in my cooking because they are around and they have wonderful flavor profiles gorgeous textures i also think it's a wonderful idea to use edible invasives just as a a matter of getting rid of them
1: (laughs) (laughs) the sixth season that you mentioned so obviously the the two additional one is the stick sorry correct Uh, and then the mud uh, season okay so do you have like favorite like ingredients Are flavors that are connected to each of those six seasons that you can maybe talk to us about?
0: Well, let's see. In the summer, oh, I think hops and peach together are two of my favorites. And I discovered that combination because on my property, I have a beautiful peach tree that is just so heavy with beautiful fruit. And I grow hops throughout the property and there was a bine of hops that was growing right next to the peaches and when i walked by they were both at their height of ripeness and the scents commingled and i realized that the two together were just this beautiful symphony and we all know that if you if it smells right oftentimes it will taste even <laughs> better and so i decided to steep the hops in a the cream for my ice cream And just elicit some of that beautiful herbaceous oil into the cream, combine it with the peaches, and it enlivened and heightened the peach flavor to a degree that is just otherworldly. It is beautiful. So, those two are are my favorite combinations for summer. For summer, okay. But I also love wild berries in the summer because it's, again, it's a foraging thing. When you find wild berries, it's such a treat. So, in the spring, I just, the ephemerals will always be my heart and soul. In the fall, it's usually when we do start harvesting things. And like corn, sweet corn and field ripened corn for milling are one of my favorite things. And it's usually a summer crop. But in Vermont, since our season is start so late, we usually harvest that in the early fall. So the very traditional corn harvest is my favorite in the early fall. But then you can't get away from the gourds as well. All those lovely things. And then stick season that usually is pumpkin. It's all things pumpkin. It is cranberries, which are also native to New England. Those things that are still sticking around that can handle a little bit of frost and that are kind of sweet and succulent and very comforting. And they kind of hold your hand into what will be the hardest season, which is winter. So stick season, also, I also love because it is around Halloween. And I have such great joy in creating recipes that are a little spooky and fun. So like both adults and children just can delight in the silliness of some really fun presentations of food. And it gets kids to eat things they might not otherwise eat if it's fun and spooky. And then in winter, just, you know, you can't go wrong with a potato. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. And then I think the mud season, correct?
0: is is maple. It's all maple all the time. Maple, maple, maple.
1: Okay. And so do you have a favorite recipe
0: in the book? One of my favorite recipes to both teach and to make is inverse puff, because it's a puff pastry that has a delicacy and a beauty like no other. And it's also one of those recipes that people will look at and go, this is, there's an impossibility attendant to this recipe because The butter block is on the outside. But I teach this. I've taught this to a 12-year-old. So it's one of those recipes that if you try it and learn it, you will never not make it when you need puff. And then you will find an occasion to use puff (laughs) for any holiday or just every day. (laughs) They're like, oh, puff would be wonderful with this. Other things that I just using an ingredient is maple. I use maple as a seasoning. So if I'm making, say, goulash or a tomato-based recipe that is savory, oftentimes these things are call for a bit of sweetener and usually it's granulated sugar, but I will always use maple. So goulash is one of the things that I tend to make a lot during the cold seasons. And then I always have my, my vinegars and my maple at the ready to enliven those recipes.
1: That's really interesting to hear you saying, I use maple as a seasoning. So it brings me back to, you know, the big trend that we have seen in the country about hot honey and spicy honey. So I was wondering, have you experimented with, you know, spices and chili and maple just to see, like, do some spicy maple?
0: Oh, yeah. Yes. My great friends at Runamuck Maple infuse both their honeys and their maples with chilies. And I work with them a lot because I love their products. And I do love, they have a Szechuan chili honey that I have infused into a a praline center for an enrobed chocolate that is so phenomenal. The hazelnut in the praline and the Szechuan honey that acts as the kind of natural humectant, but also just imparts so much gorgeous flavor, that smokiness And that hazelnut together and the creaminess are just these fabulous flavor bombs in an enrobed chocolate. I'm just enthralled by it. And I also make a milk bread honey bun that and I will use if I'm making the honey buns for something like a pulled pork slider, which the recipe is here in the book, I use their infused chili honeys so that there's just that little pop of heat and sweet in the bun because the bun naturally will have honey in it. So why not? add that extra layer of flavor that will just really, really go well with something like pulled pork.
1: So in in this book, I mean, there's fantastic recipes, you know, from, you know, culinary, savory recipes and, you know, sweet ones as well. Obviously you have, you know, explore like the, the cuisine for Vermont and from your opinion, what set that cuisine apart from other regions cuisine in the United States?
0: I think we're in such an unusual microclimate that allows for those spring ephemerals to thrive, for maple to flow so freely. And I also grow saffron crocus. And our climate allows for some very interesting things to grow that you would think were completely impossible. I feel as if we're in this little plot of land that is so special and so inviting to very unusual things. Saffron being like a great example that we are able to kind of cultivate these interesting crops and interesting flavors naturally in our own environment and kind of infuse foods that are very comforting because that's what Vermont food usually is, what Vermont is seen as. It's a very comforting place, but we're able to add some beautiful layered flavors to things that would normally be relatively bland if you think about comfort food. And ele- and it elevates things that you would think, oh, they're just everyday food. But we are capable of growing and cultivating things that will make the ordinary extraordinary.
1: Is it your approach then to balance, I would say, the traditional aspect of Vermont, you know, recipes into like an, an innovation? In fact, you know, like staying current. Is it that?
0: Yes. Well, y- yes. Yeah, absolutely. Layering flavors and using technology too to help your your culinary progress. So for instance, I, I think everyone should have a sous vide. And I think people find it inc- incredibly intimidating where I think it's a tool that is so easy to use and will lock in your your proteins, your uh, my gosh, people are overcooking fish left and right and I'm like why don't you just get a sous vide? <laughs> just get a sous vide. <laughs> that poor fish didn't ask for this. And just dial it into the exact temperature that you're going for. For instance, things like fried chicken, where oftentimes it's very... I called it a, a blind protein, because when you cook it, you don't see... You can't have a visual on the protein, and you can't do a poke test either. Of course, you can use a thermometer to see what the temperature is, but there are only so many times you want to stab something with a beautiful encased crust. So I always recommend for things like fried chicken, even for Wellingtons, to sous vide the meat first, just to under, so that when you do the ultimate flash fry or the bake, that you are able to get the perfect crust on the outside, and also the perfect temperature on the inside. I often find that people are so frightened with fried chicken, of undercooking the chicken and murdering someone, that they just crisp it to the like the edge of its life. So it's got that terrible burnt oil taste. And I love just a quick flash fry where it is just buttery and golden and perfectly crisp. And if you do it to perfection on the outside, oftentimes the inside will suffer. So the sous vide is there to hold your hand. The other thing that I love the sous vide for is a recipe called salt rising bread which is a historic recipe to the Appalachian Mountains. And traditionally, they would have the salt rock that was warm all the time. And they would produce the starter made from cornmeal that would just bubble away for hours, even days, on this hot rock salt. Now, that's something that we don't have around today. And many recipes that try to recreate it say, well, maybe you could try putting the the light on in your oven for that low heat, but it's never warm enough. And in developing this recipe to modern standards, I thought, am I crazy? Why hasn't anybody thought about using a sous vide? (laughs) Because... You can keep it at temperature for days and at a temperature that's low enough that it won't kill the bacteria, but high enough that it invites it to grow. And that's one of the things that I, I have so much fun with. And these things don't make your life more complicated. In fact, these wonderful technologies enhance your life and make them simpler and allow you to recreate recipes that might otherwise seem impossible. I have so much fun developing those kinds of things.
1: And yeah, I agree with you. I have a sous vide and, uh, you know, it's fantastic. It's changed my way of cooking since, uh, you know, I acquired it. So. Yes, it's, yeah. a, it's a great tool. So coming back to to the book, what was your biggest challenge in creating this this good book?
0: Well, the, there were challenges like if I was going to put a recipe in the book, I wanted to make sure that it would work unfailingly and that's that salt rising bread was one of the challenges is finding a way that it, there was a guaranteed outcome and the and i found it i found it in the sous vide the same would be true of say a wellington where i in my wellington i ask but i don't demand that you that you make my inverse puff to encase it but i also ask that you sous vide it to just under the temperature that you're you're going for so that you when you slice into it that you get no surprises.
1: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Do you have any tips for home cooks that wants or home baker that wants to elevate their game in either in the culinary side or in the pastry?
0: I think investing in some simple tools, very helpful. And there are some things that I have at the very beginning of the book that are tools that I find I, I cannot live without. And two of them would be a perforated baking mat and a Perforated sheet pan. And those two will help you when you're making anything from cookies to a Wellington to a galette because it allows you to get heat hitting the bottom of your baked good at the same time the heat hits the top. And I find that a lot of people have trouble with maintaining this environment in their oven where they're not bumping up the temperature so high that they're burning the top of it, but still not getting the crispness that they want from the bottom. A perforated cheap pan and mat will allow the heat to hit the bottom of your product at the same time that it touches the top. And it is something that is inexpensive and it stores away. It doesn't take up counter space and things like that will elevate your baking and your cooking and not take a lot of money out of your pocketbook.
1: Very good. So now let's switch to from home cook to more professional people so what's your advice that you have for aspiring chefs or bakers that wants to pursue a career in food
0: I think that you have to be be and stay curious all the time never think you know everything because if you think you know everything then you are not going to be able to enjoy your profession as you should sharing information growing and learning Are the great joys in baking and pastry. And unless you open your heart and mind to other bakers and pastry chefs with great ideas, other cultures and other kinds of baked goods, you'll never be as good as you really want to be. And I really find that just exploring and tasting and experimenting are vital in keeping our profession relevant and exciting. I also think that people should stay away from gimmicky stuff. Like if something's trending, play with it and have fun, but don't, don't do it just because it's trendy. Make sure that whatever you're making actually comes from your heart and from your, I don't know. I think sometimes you can really taste it when someone's trying too hard and they're just trying to like be gimmicky. So I think whatever you do, whatever you make, it has to be earnest and thoughtful and really from your heart. because. Honestly, we can taste it otherwise.
1: So uh, before I switch to a very quick session of rapid fire questions, I want to make sure that everyone, you know, get a copy of your book, My Vermont Table. This is a, a fantastic book. I cannot wait to, you know, start cooking with it. For everyone who is listening to the podcast, they can go when this episode is going to be air on my Instagram at Flavors Unknown. I'm going to raffle a book, you know, you, that book, so people can, you know, can participate and and get, you know, a, a copy of your book. Let's switch on a rapid fire question. So maybe it's going to be a too, too vague in general, but if I You and I are going in to uh, do a little uh, discovery tour uh, and tasting tour in Vermont. What are like five places that we should hit?
0: Okay. You are going to hit Morse Farms for Maple, Hill Farmstead Brewery for some of the best beer in the world, King Arthur Flower for all things baked goods, and Sugar Glider Kitchen (laughs) for discovering great baked goods. And then what's our fifth place? Oh, there's so much. Vermont Salumi for gorgeous meats and fantasticness in, in pork and beef products.
1: Okay. You had to add one six one for me because I love, because of my French DNA, I love cheese and artisanal cheeses. And I know Vermont is a great place for it.
0: Jas- We're going to Jasper Hill. We're going to Jasper Hill and having some Harbison cheese and your mind will be blown.
1: Very good. Thank you. What is your guilty pleasure food?
0: I don't think of any food as guilty. (laughs) I think anything that I enjoy in moderation is a gift and I don't feel guilty about it. Though I will say, (laughs) and this is terrible, I love a Carvel ice cream cake. They are chemical tasting. They have dyes unknown to nature. But when I was a child, I was raised vegan and macrobiotic. And that is one of those, those things that I was never allowed to have unless I went to someone's house at a birthday party. So, okay, I do have that one guilty pleasure, a Carvel ice cream cake. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was not expecting that.
0: <laughs> so, if you were, if you were deprived as, deprived as a child, of you, you, you will know. You will know what I'm talking about.
1: Besides yours, obviously, what are like the three cookbooks that inspired you the most, either in
0: your career or recently? I think anything Pierre Hermé and slash Dory Greenspan write. So Dory Greenspan writes with Pierre Hermé when he does translations for his French cookbooks. But she is also a baker wonder in her own right. And any of their books are just, to me, so fantastic and inspiring. And also Thomas Keller from his he's got a beautiful sous vide book which i and so that is an elevated sous vide book but anything from bouchon to french laundry his books are very inspirational and just beautiful co- coffee table books as well
1: okay my last rapid fire question beside the classics what condiment spices sauces dressings that you have on hand at home
0: well, I use Maggi, which is a Swiss liquid seasoning, which is a traditional in the German kitchen. I grew up with it. So I love that. And I think of it as the wheat based soy sauce. It's new mommy bomb. I can't live without it. It reminds me of my childhood, my grandmother, my mother, maple, of course. I also have dashi, which is the granulated fish stock, the Japanese fish stock. I have that next to me at all times because it's beautiful in all manner of soup, not just meat. I also have sumac I harvest sumac and from staghorns and that punchy citrus flavor with slight herbaceousness and the beautiful color I use it in everything from caramels to savory to roast chicken. It is one of those spices that is so gorgeous and and meaningful. I think it has such a depth of flavor that you can't mistake it for lemon. It it has a citrus beauty all its own. And then of course I am an acolyte of Duke's mayonnaise, which might sound insane cuz you can only get it in the south, but there's something so good about it that I can't live without my Duke's mayonnaise. <laughs>
1: Very good. Thank you so much for being the guest on the show. For everyone, you definitely should get a copy of my Vermont table. This is a fantastic book. And yeah, so good luck for the whole promotion aspect of the book.
0: Thank you so much.
1: What an incredible conversation with Gesine Bullock prado We hope you enjoyed learning about her unique background the six seasons of Vermont, and her approach to pastry and recipe development. Don't forget to follow Flavors Unknown on Instagram for a chance to win a copy of my Vermont table recipe for all six seasons. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we continue to explore the fascinating world of flavors with more fascinating guests. Thank you for listening, and until next time, happy cooking! And until then, keep in mind that the people who likes to eat are always the best people.
0: Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.